it's a necessary process to go through the grief and to feel the pain. And some of my family is still asks me like, why do you feel the pain now? And I, I think I, I need to, or I needed to. And so in that sense, I'm thankful for it. I've also learned from a lot of brain injury survivors about how they cry and how they grieve and how they're able to let out the emotions. And it's a necessary, it's, it's almost like I, I didn't realize I had to do it. And then once I did, it was very difficult, but a, a healing process different than recovery, if that makes sense. I'm Jamie Mo Crazy, and you're listening to Life Gets Mo Crazy, where we'll hear from people who either been through a trauma or helped someone else through it. Listen and learn strategies you can implement in your life so when a metaphorical avalanche slides you down the mountain of life, you can climb an alternative peak with the best view. Hi, I'm here today with Daniel Avasar, a critical brain injury survivor 24 years ago. And he, after that, got his PhD in neurophysiology. He is using his PhD for the work that he's currently doing now to help the audience understand brain injuries. So this is a pretty fascinating conversation we're about to have about being a survivor and then learning the science behind what caused your symptoms. So thanks for joining. Thank you. So let's start with how did you acquire your brain injury 24 years ago? Right. Um, well, I was actually, I went to the first Coachella concert. And I was driving back with friends, and I was in the backseat of my friend's car, and we were on the highway, and basically the car flipped and landed on a either on a guardrail or on a pole right on where I was sitting, and it crushed in my head. So the backseat is where the car landed, and it landed on my head. I was lucky enough to get airlifted out of there. My friends, my friends were fine, and they said um, paramedics were there within like 10 minutes, and then a helicopter was there within 20 minutes and just took me to Cedar sinai in Los Angeles. And I think they opened up my skull pretty quickly and um, I underwent surgery probably within. Wow. And 24 years ago is such a long time ago. And brain injury, understanding both in the medical sense as well as just the community understanding has changed pretty dramatically over 24 years. I always joke about how much it has changed in some places. It is still changing. But when my older sister went to Georgetown Medical School about 20 years ago, so this is close to your injury, she was taught by her professors that you had uh, two years to heal after a brain injury. And the brain was only plastic. It only had plasticity. Um, for the cortical years, which are the first two years of life, or the two, first two years after brain injury. And then it was thought that all of your disabilities were permanent. Looking at some of your notes about seven years of cognitive rebuilding and what you are currently rebuilding in yourself now um, concerning your plasticity, I know that we both know that it goes on much longer than two years. So it's a pretty dramatic shift. Yeah, I agree 100%. And during that time and after my injury, 
to find anything, to find any information was very, very difficult. And I remember, you know, I was in the hospital about 36 days. And when I came out, my mom says I was like a toddler. So I, I didn't really have reasoning. I didn't really have thinking. And the therapist that I had was very hard to find, but they found a good therapist and she helped to get my reasoning and kind of like my adult mind back. I was 18 at the time, so I wasn't an adult, but I was I, I was like a kid. And then it, it switched back my reasoning, my logic came back. But my mom says that she had a friend who was a librarian that was kind of scouring, trying to find any information, trying to find anything that could help us. And we found very little. Over the years, I've been doing a lot of research. And yeah, it seems like there was almost like a dark age where people didn't really understand anything, know anything about brain injury, and they didn't think much about it. Or it's like you're you're set, you have a, maybe two years or a certain window, and then after that, you're not going to change. But I know that in my experience, from once I was aware of what was happening, I was pushing to change and pushing to improve as much as I could from the moment I kind of realized what had happened to me. And that probably that was probably four to six months after my brain injury. So yeah, the change keeps happening, and it's it's definitely not easy, but it's almost like a, a pushing a pillar. Yeah, and you mentioned that the first seven years of your recovery were focused on your cognitive rehabilitation. So let's let's go through a little bit about this. Like from the start, did you go to outpatient therapy once you left the hospital or was most of this on your own through your education? Right. Um, so no, there was, I had two therapies in the beginning. One was a vision therapy where I went to a clinic and they were doing experimental research at the time. This is around 2000 and it was experimental and it worked for me. It re, it re, it reactivated my cranial nerve so that my eye wasn't stuck focused in. The other therapy that I had was with this speech language pathologist and she was an expert in really helping people figure out what their problems were. So with the neuropsych testing, they didn't pick up on my cognitive problems, partly because of the double vision. I wasn't able to read, so they didn't, they, they kind of modified all the tests. But with that therapist, I remember I tried to do a math problem, like an algebra problem, a very basic reasoning problem, and I couldn't do it. And when I tried to think, I crashed in a way that I was just fatigued and laying in bed for days. And that began, like, that was like the baseline, okay, what can I do? I can add, I can subtract. So she started me on this very slow but regimented doing addition and subtraction in my head. And then I would hit the fatigue very quickly, but at least I could do, like, 30 seconds of adding or 30 seconds of math in my head. And then we built that up. And over over probably the three or four months I worked with her, I increased my cognitive endurance. And I also gained this awareness of when I hit that limit from anything that involved too much thinking, it was just too much. So her lesson for me was don't go that far. Once I finished the therapy with her, I could do one or two algebra problems. And then I hit the limit then. So with that therapist, I, I gained that awareness, and then I went back to a community college to do the classes I had done in high school. First Algebra 1, then Algebra 2, and then General Chemistry, and all, all of them I had these same problems. And then it just became a really strange process of repetition to get the information in my head, to get the gears of my mind to work. And then, I don't know, so there's the first two or three years that were like that. Then I went back to school. Other people hadn't recommended that I do, but I really wanted to go back to college. My accident happened in my third week of my freshman year. 
So the next six years, and my undergrad took a while, I just was rebuilding those processes, regaining it. And there was changes in me over the years where all of a sudden, oh, okay, now it's not like I get the information into my head like normal, but it's a little bit easier. And the gears are working a little bit easier. And I don't know, I, I have to really think about it. There was a lot of different changes in that time, but it took about two or three years for me to recognize that I really cannot push my limits. Otherwise, I'm just in bed for days and it's not productive. And once I learned that, slowly but surely, I had these like level up experiences. And then I remember around seven years, my thinking, my ability to get information into my head and the gears, everything felt more fluid. And then I was like, okay, I'm normal enough. And then, and that was the phase I was in when I got into neuroscience, where I started really making sense of what happened to me. But it wasn't like I could talk to anyone about it. Across those seven years, the changes kept happening. And by the end, I was like, my mind is fluid. My thinking is fluid. I can pretend like I'm normal. And so then I tried to pretend like I was normal and not talk about my brain injury and just be myself, you know? So yeah, it was a very strange seven years. Yeah. And you mentioned that you had a little bit of financial support, but you didn't have much in the terms of family support with what you were going through. Yeah, it was absolutely crazy because, you know, I got home and everyone was aware of the double vision, but that was kind of it. And put it this way, I think my family was so happy that I was alive and that I was back home that they didn't really understand what had changed in me. I'm still not a person who was able to ask for help and able to talk about my problems, but I really had tried. And when I went to the doctors and when I went to the therapist, I was explaining to them, you know, my inner me is gone. And they, my mom says the doctors thought that was fascinating, but they didn't really help me. And somewhere along the line, I, I felt like I was a stranger in myself. And I didn't know how to explain it to my family, so I didn't. And then they just assumed that was okay. And as the cognitive problems, you know, sense of direction was gone, all these inner, um, my, my memory was horrible. It's still bad. But all these problems were in me. I just, I, I hid it. And, you know, my parents were very supportive and so glad I was alive. They're like, okay, we'll cover college. You don't, initially the plan was to work and go to school. And then now it's like, just go to school. Just try to get your stuff back. Here's the thing, like 18 years later, when I started my podcast talking to brain injury people, and I started almost like coming out of the closet about what had happened, and I still have these problems. They're not as bad. Then my mom and I started talking about, she's like, you know, when you came back from the hospital, you were like a stranger, but I didn't, she didn't want me to know, so she didn't talk to me. And I was like a stranger in my head, but I didn't want her to know, so I didn't say it to her, and we never communicated about it. We were just like almost alone watching the other person and we were both aware of it and then with my younger siblings I think it really affected them but they didn't understand how to think about it and my dad put it this way he doesn't really understand I tried to explain to him how my mind is different my mind changed since my brain injury and then he asked well what is what is mind what do you mean and I, I realized I think he's just the person that's been in his head you live with our inner world and that that's what broken me that's what was different after it. And so over the last probably six or seven years, I realized, first of all, I didn't have a lot of emotions about my brain injury. It's called alexithymia, but it's an inability to feel. And I've been working on that probably for the last six years. I say that the early years with my brain injury, it was like black and white. Like 
my inner world wasn't there, but I was working to restore it. I was happy to be alive. I felt like I needed to be who I was and I wanted to gain back as much as I could. So I was fighting to gain that, but I didn't have the grief, the loss, the certain feelings that now I have gained awareness of. And that has been a difficult process, but it's been good. It's almost filled in the color of my life, both the highs and the lows. Yeah. And I think something that ties into not having memories of your brain injury is you've mentioned that you kept wanting to recover. You kept wanting to be okay. And I think it's scary if you feel the emotions of your brain injury to still be fighting to rebuild your life. Yeah. I think that once I really gained access to my emotions and that wasn't a natural process for me, maybe the person I was I mean, I was 18 years old. I was kind of like a wild kid, very um, adventurous, and I enjoyed sports and athletics. And I just, um, I wasn't an emotional person to begin with, but it's almost like the brain injury kicked that out of my system. Like, I really wasn't able to gain feeling. I remember from my earliest memories in the hospital when my friends who were in the accident came to visit me, I gave them some weird speech like, Have you ever put down a towel or you put down something? And then a few minutes later, it falls down. I was saying that's how the car landing on my head was like I was that towel. And it was, it was very detached, very, you know, I, I wasn't all there. I wish I remembered what I said, but I, I just had a brief recollection of it, but it wasn't anything emotional. It was very just removed from myself. I, I also tell people that feeling like my mind and my inner me was not me, the double vision of the world, the inability to think, the inability to have. And I remember not being able to just put information into my head. That was something that persisted for a long time. And I, the way I worked on that was to rewrite things over and over and over and over. But anyway, all these problems inside of me consumed my head, consumed my mind, consumed my internal focus. And that's kind of the inner me that I rebuilt was focused on all those problems. So for whatever reason, I didn't have the emotions then. And then once it did hit, it's a necessary process to go through the grief and to feel the pain. And some of my family is still asks me, like, why do you feel the pain now? And I, I think I, I need to or I needed to. And so in that sense, I'm thankful for it. I've also learned from a lot of brain injury survivors about how they cry and how they grieve and how they're able to let out the emotions. And it's a necessary, it's, it's almost like I, I didn't realize I had to do it. And then once I did, it was very difficult, but a a healing process different than recovery, if that makes sense. Yeah. And something that you've mentioned a few times is about how you felt lost in who you were and you felt like you were a child who had to regrow. As an adult, relearning everything is really challenging for yourself and for other individuals. Because if you're a three-year-old little kid and you go and you throw something and they say, oh, you shouldn't do that. that that's You're taught how to interact with society and how to be emotional and, and you're taught all these things. But as an adult, it's hard for you to hear it and for people to say, you're acting weird. Don't throw this at somebody. Don't call your friend 20 times. Like This is not behaviors you should be doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the thing that, so I couldn't agree more. And the the recognition in me, because 
parts of me, like my physical abilities and my connection with my body were not injured. So I still had that. And I used my exercise almost like an anchor to recover, basically riding a stationary bike and doing, you know, weights. And just, I used that as a relief, but I could see the parts of me that weren't there or that weren't, were redeveloping and regaining, rebuilding. And it was so frustrating. And so it was a, a bizarre frustration and anxiety that I'm going to be stuck like this. And so many times you have to build the habits for so long before they start taking action. Yeah. And so I think I, I call it a repetition, 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 but really it should be a million more times repetition because it's, it's so much work to restore those little pieces. And then it's almost like the parts of you around it are there or gain awareness of what's missing. And it's hard to explain what's missing because it's so many little things. I didn't have problems with my speech, but with my thought, with my thinking, with any action, any, I, I want to do, I want to brush my teeth. I remember the first two years, it was almost like a drill of brushing my teeth, a drill of putting on my socks. And in the beginning, I couldn't even do it or it would, it would lead to that fatigue. I think that that also kind of traumatized me, or at least it left me with a lot of anxiety when I go to do a basic action. Sometimes I can have I don't know, maybe a negative attribution bias is what the literature calls it, but just a negative view on things because those things were so hard for me. And now I can do it, but it's still, it left a scar or it left an emotional imprint that I'm dealing with now. And it's hard to explain to people, but yeah, I don't even think recovery is the right word. I use rebuilding, relearning, redeveloping, regaining. That makes a lot more sense. And one of the things that is so challenging is that you feel like nobody else understands what you're going through. And like I mentioned, it it still needs way more awareness. And you need to have the understanding that you can go through steps to recover. Because there are so many therapists and doctors who put ceilings on people and say, this is where you're going to get, this is how you're going to go and just get used to it. And that was kind of a lot of the understanding, like accept your disabilities and get used to your disabilities and move on with life with your disabilities instead of an understanding that you can change so much about you. However, how long it takes and those habits. And if you don't have a little bit of understanding or just some trust, like you must have somehow had the confidence and the trust that you were going to recover because you put in years and time to it. And it sounds like while you were putting in that time, you didn't really have very many role models saying, if you put in this time, you can go far beyond. You just did it. Yeah. That's one of the examples of almost like a, maybe a delusion that I had that I, I couldn't accept that I was going to be like this. And I know for me, I've connected with the shame that I had now because I was a pretty intellectual person. I was, I enjoyed school. I was good at math, good at, you know, certain subjects. And I, I, I loved that part of myself. And when I lost it, I was like, I cannot accept this. And then when I couldn't even think, I think I had so much shame around the inability, but maybe I wouldn't have had it if I would have been able to talk to somebody and explain it. And then what the speech therapist showed me, it's like, I'm going to run a million laps here and it's so hard. And then I can move one inch, one tiny increment. That's like one baby step towards what I used to be. And then I thought, okay, that's what I need to do. So I need to just start working on it. And the work is very hard. 
I, I remember the frustration through the roof when you try to do something that you think you can do. And it's like that first step or that first even initiation of the action in your head is all you can do. I think for many people that would make them want to give up. And it's a very frustrating and strange place to be. But um, if you can do that baby step, then do that one until that one becomes automatic enough to do the next one. And it's a really, really weird regaining. I don't think enough attention is paid to how strange relearning and rebuilding those automatic parts is. I think looking at it like a child developing is almost the most accurate way to look at it, except you're not a child. <laughs> right. That's the thing is it is a child developing. We've heard similarities to child development. Most people seem to experience in some form or another, some poor part of them redeveloping through their childhood stages. However, you are an adult and you think you should act and behave like an adult. And there's just not enough attention, awareness, and funding to the recovery process that it, it takes so much longer than people understand. Once you go through the acute stages of rehabilitation in the hospital, most insurance companies cap you at a certain level. If you've done like 30 treatments, they'll cap you. Only 28 states have any sort of traumatic brain injury fund. And that's one of the big things that we are trying to gather people together like yourself and tell their stories because there's so much stigma tied to it as well. You don't want to tell your boss you got a brain injury because they will be expecting you to perform at a lower level. Even if you've gone through the steps and you don't have the chronic fatigue and you are feeling very competent and capable, and it actually gives you a different mindset and, and skill set that is not attainable without experiencing something like this, you're going to perform better. They're going to assume that you're going to perform worse because you had a brain injury. It's drastically stigmatized, and I think that's a big reason why I was hiding it. Oh, there, there are so many factors. I think that also one of the reasons, so you know, I'm doing this podcast to interview people about the details of what they're going through, and you just went over a lot with the fatigue and the changes. And um, uh, Needless to say, I think that there could be more support. I think that there could be people, it's almost like they could collect resources that are there if people understood what kind of support they needed. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining. And do you have any last words that you would like to leave the audience with? I think that one of the biggest problems with brain injury is the brain injury. The second biggest problem is the misunderstanding. I think if people listen to us and take us at our word and give us the benefit of the doubt, and those are things that I've heard many brain injured people talk about, I think it would help people a lot. The misunderstanding makes the battle so much harder. So people listen to what our experiences are. It would be helpful. Thank you so much for tuning in to listen to Life Gets Mo Crazy. I hope you learned some new ways to recover from struggle and climb an alternative peak by listening to this episode. If you loved it, please subscribe to the podcast and share with your family and friends. If you would like to follow me, Jamie Mo Crazy, you can find me on all social media platforms at Jamie Mo Crazy or hashtag Mo Crazy Strong. Each episode is the last Friday of every month. So go be Mo Crazy Strong until our next episode. <laughs>